would have to say prayer has probably been the biggest thing to change our marriage, um, whether that's Jordan praying over us or me if I'm struggling or having a rough day, um, or if we're having a disagreement, me just praying about it and seeing how God either changes my heart or his heart or both of our hearts, depending upon what it is, has been probably the biggest Thing that's worked for us, I think. I would say for me, uh, it would be our life group. Um, just the growing um, with our group together and then also um, doing all of the studies that helps grow our relationship together. Um, that has been something that has worked for me um, and then also Natasha for us to grow uh, together. Um, within our life group. Hey, we are Nick and Nicole Norton. And one thing that's really strengthened our marriage throughout the years is the concept of humility, um, of when things are tense, when we're upset with each other, stepping back and looking inward and, and recognizing that there's always something we could do better to serve the other. Um, not necessarily that whatever's going on is our fault, but focusing first on what we can do individually to help our spouse um, through really any situation. Uh, it doesn't always work immediately. Sometimes there's a lot of angst that comes before one of us gets to that point, uh, but it has worked pretty well. Well, good morning. Good to be with you all today. Welcome to those who are watching online at carneyfree.com, those in the venue and here in the auditorium. This is the few and the proud Nebraskans amidst this Arctic blast, huh? Thanks for coming out today. It just gets worse from here, I understand. The rest of this week. Uh, but grateful that you came out today in spite of the snow. Thanks for joining us for worship this morning. I'm grateful for those testimonies from those couples. Aren't those great? Really, really nice to hear, yeah. We probably have shown... 10 or 12 of those over the past number of weeks, and I have a couple more to show next Sunday as we wrap up this message series next Sunday. Susie will join me next weekend and look forward to teaching together on the mission of marriage, God's mission of marriage. But I appreciate what those couples said just now, prayer, life group, and humility. We'll just close in prayer with that. Those are some good ones just to... Uh, commit ourselves to that, being in community, uh, praying together, and uh, being sure we deal with our stuff with humility. That's critical. This morning, we're going to talk about, talk about fighting for each other, fighting for each other and the reality of conflict in any relationship, any relationship. The, the question is not if I will have conflict in my marriage or in my most important relationships. The question is, how? How will I have conflict? It's really not even when. Like, it's inevitable. You're going to have conflict in your important relationships. The question is, how will I have conflict in my marriage? How will I have conflict with my kids? How will I have conflict with my siblings? How will I have conflict in my most important relationships? And then also, related to that, how do I manage and tend to the relationship after the conflict is over, such that there could be 
a measure of healing together. How do we fight when we commit to fighting the right way? That's what we're going to talk about here today. Here are a number of different ways that, or a number of different topics that couples tend to fight on. I talked to a couple friends about this last week, and we populate a little list, and you can see if any of this list resonates with you. Uh, did you get the right groceries on the grocery list, honey? Uh, paint colors on the walls. Furniture in the living room. How loud he chews his food. Exercise routines or lack thereof. Diet routines or lack thereof. How the food is cooked. How much money you save. How much money you give. And how much money you spend. Any fighting on that in your house? How many donuts are allowed for a man on Sunday morning? Three. The answer to that question is three donuts are allowed on Sunday morning. Medical decisions for the kids. School decisions for the kids. Discipline decisions for the kids. Driving and parking issues. Balancing holidays with in-laws type issues. The right way to load a dishwasher. Come on, come on. And the wrong way to load a dishwasher. The right way to fold the laundry and the wrong way to fold the laundry. <laughs> There's a lot of different little things that we argue about, aren't there? And, and really, like, when you come up with a list like that, we realize that many of the things that we have conflict about in marriage are actually small things, aren't they? Like, a lot of the stuff that we end up having issues with each other over are not big moral issues. They're little things. And yet, if we do not have principles and values for how we handle the conflict in our marriages and in our most important relationships, then those small things will create a big wedge in those relationships, won't they? We got to have certain principles. We have to have certain values for how we're going to have conflict when it inevitably comes up. As I've noted already in this series, uh, God gives us a blueprint of sorts for how marriage should look. And it starts with these words, that a man would leave his father and mother, and a woman would leave her father and mother, and they would cleave to one another, and then they would become one flesh. And four different times, the Bible gives that basic blueprint prescription for how the marriage relationship is going to start and how it would continue to be healthy, leave, cleave, and become one flesh. And I think it, it's envisioned well through a couple two-by-fours that are stuck together with a really strong wood glue. You have a really strong wood glue on these two two-by-fours, and if you tried to break these apart, what would happen to each of the two-by-fours? Help me out this morning. What would happen? Yeah, it's splinter all over the place. A piece of this two-by-four would be left on this one. And then pieces of this one would be left on this one. And that's a pretty powerful portrait of what happens when a couple gets divorced. And there's no condemnation for anyone who has been through the pain of divorce in this room. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm simply saying is this is an illustration from the Bible, leave cleave and become one flesh. The word cleave biblically is actually the same word for glue. You're stuck together. So when you cleave to someone, you say, I'm stuck to you. Please don't say I'm stuck with you. 
okay? I'm stuck to you. And if we were to break this apart, it's going to break apart all over the place, and there's, there's pain there. And so again, I don't share that to convey any condemnation. We are so grateful for everyone who's here, whatever situation they've come in from today. But as we're thinking about building up relations for life, it begins with this commitment to the biblical blueprint and saying, uh, the root of it, of it all is I am stuck to you. And I commit myself to being stuck to you. And so I commit myself to doing conflict in a way that actually bonds us closer together. I, I want to tell you that if you do conflict in a biblical manner, you will bond more closely with those that you love. If you do conflict in a non-biblical manner, you will really hurt those that you love. It's not if we'll have conflict. Conflict is a given. It's coming to us all. And so how you commit yourself to having conflict is absolutely critical. I tell you, there's something very, very powerful to saying, I'm going to have conflict with the people that I love the most. Because in saying I will have conflict with them, I'm saying you're worth it. Like, like, like you're worth the emotional pain that it inevitably takes to get through this issue, whatever it may be. And as you work through it, biblically, you will be strengthened it's kind of like lifting weights. It's really, really painful in the moment, but it strengthens you in the long term if you learn to deal with your conflict in a really beautiful biblical fashion. And so that's what I want to talk about here though, this morning. We're all going to have um, relationships that are critically important to us. And so no matter what you've come in with here though, this morning, if you're a single person, if you're married, if you're single again, if you hope to one day be married, if you um, have a brother or a sister or a mother or a father or a son or a daughter that you're struggling with right now, I'm telling you these principles that we'll talk about today apply to us all for our most important relationships. We gotta work through the differences we have and the Bible gives us plenty of material to do so. I wanna give you three practical ways that we can begin to work through our conflicts in a healthy manner according to the scriptures. I'd encourage you to consider applying maybe just one of these the, this week. The first one is this, seek covenant, not consumerism. Seek covenant, not consumerism. You might even add to that, seek covenant, not consumerism or compatibility. We addressed this in week one of our series here, The Ride of Your Life, but uh, most of us have kind of conditioned ourselves in all of our relationships to think with a consumeristic mindset. And that's because we live in an incredibly consumeristic culture. So for example, if you need new curtains, you go out and you buy them. And then you throw out the old ones, right? If you need a new sofa, you go out and you buy one. And you donate, you donate the old sofa. If you need a new TV, you go out and you buy one, and if you had a box TV still in your house, now you pay someone to get that old one out of your house. But it's all this consumeristic mindset that I have something, it's getting old, I replace it. And when that is brought into marriage, which is very easy to do, it gets very, very dangerous. 
In fact, when one person guesses that perhaps the other person has a consumeristic mindset, then every single time they get into an argument, they're scared. Every single time there's conflict, it's frightening that perhaps this person will not stick with me through this conflict that we're going through. Now, traditionally, all cultures and all of history have valued marriage with more of a covenant mentality. And a covenant is this idea of steadfast, continuous, ongoing, faithful love. It's described beautifully in God's covenant with us. For example, Psalm 118. Let's read Psalm 118, verse 1, fall from the screen out loud together. Would you please join me? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love... Yeah, yeah. We give thanks to the Lord because he is good, and his love endures forever for you. This is a common refrain over and over again throughout the Bible that God is steadfast and faithful in his love for you that even when we are faithless, our God is faithful. Now, why is he faithful? Because he's made a covenant promise to us. He's promised, I'm with this person even when they're faithless. It's this want to. I want you even when you failed. I'm coming after you even when you failed. Even when we disagree, even when we see things through different vantage points, I am coming after you. And that's what God does for us. And believe it or not, that's what he actually invites us to do for each other with at least two of our relationships, our spouse and our kids that we would be faithful to them no matter what they do in return to us. And if we do that over time, in spite of the fact that we know it will cost us, then it will build a great legacy. I love the way Pastor Tim Keller puts it in his wonderful book, The Meaning of Marriage. He explains that young people in his church, he has an interesting church in New York City in which 80% of a very large congregation, 6,000 people in his church, in, right in the middle of Manhattan, 6,000 people, there are Christians there, okay? 6,000 people right in the middle of Manhattan, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and 80% of them are single, which reflects Manhattan. And young people regularly come to him from his church, and they say to him, Pastor Keller, I just want to be with someone where love comes easily. I just want someone I am compatible with. To which he regularly says, why do you think that you'll find that? That's not the nature of this kind of activity. That's like a baseball player saying, why is it so hard to hit a 95-mile-per-hour fastball? Marriage is not easy. Compatibility is not easy. Hitting a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, is not, that's not the nature of this kind of activity. So you have to reorient your mind not toward compatibility, which is synonymous to consumerism, but reorient our mind toward covenant. And the truth is, if you enter into a covenantal relationship and both parties agree that this is a covenant based on Hesed love, that I'm coming after you no matter how difficult it is, then you grow in compatibility with each other over time. You see that you have differences, but you grow through those differences and you actually become more compatible with each other over time. 
Now, I, I have to admit that I fell into a false compatibility or consumeristic mindset in my marriage a few years ago in which I was kind of down on things in our marriage for a while and I would come home after a difficult day at work and sometimes you usually see me like happy, excited Adrian on Sunday. Sometimes Susie doesn't see that person. <laughs> and sometimes I'd come home after a difficult day at work and I'd have like Mr. Melancholy Adrian face on. And um, I was really wanting her to meet my needs the moment she saw my needs and immediately, intuitively know just what I needed. And so I started saying things like, Susie, why don't you notice when I'm in a difficult spot and just come and, 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 and care for me based on my needs with what you see right now? And like after this many years, shouldn't we be so simpatico with each other that you intuitively know right away just what I need based on the things that you see on my face? Like, why do I have to explain myself again? And again, and again. And those words, guys, are you taking notes on what not to say? Uh, those kinds of words are indicative of a compatibility or a consumeristic mindset. You meet my needs. You intuit what I need instead of me doing the hard work of explaining it to you. And she wisely said in that moment, after we had a few of these conversations, she wisely said, you know, Adrian, we're just very different people. I think we're going to have to keep on explaining ourselves to each other again and again and again. And I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to learn. And I want to understand you. But we're going to have to keep on explaining ourselves to each other. And that was a covenant mentality in response to my consumeristic mentality. And because she demonstrated said love for me in that moment, that steadfast love that keeps going after it, saying, I want to understand you rather than just asking you to understand me. I seek to understand you before asking you to understand me. Because she came at it that way, that invigorated me to work on it together as well. Now that's really, really hard to do if both people don't come into it with a covenant mentality. If we don't have a covenant mentality, again, conflict threatens us each time. It becomes very frightening to us. So number one, though, this morning, I want to tell you to seek covenant, not consumerism, as it relates to any conflict. You have to establish that again and again. I'm in this with you, and I come into it humbly. Number two, build bridges and then commit yourself to meeting in the middle. Some time ago, Susie and I were um, going to counseling together, and uh, I guess this is like the self-therapy sermon, excuse me. I'm sharing with you a lot of information. We were going to counseling together some time ago, and we've gone to counseling together a couple different occasions in our marriage, and we're just committed to it that way. Sometimes you need a refresher. And uh, we were dealing with some issues and brought those to the attention of the counselor, and he said simply at the beginning of our sessions, Adrian and Susie, if you come into your issues believing you are right, you're wrong. Period. End of sentence. If you come into your conflict with this posture, you're wrong from the beginning. Because 
This posture, I'm right and you're wrong, that's called, what's it called? That's called pride. That's called pride. And as Proverbs 13 says, pride only breeds quarrels. You know prideful people who come like know-it-alls. It only breeds quarrels. But wisdom is found in those who take advice. Wisdom is found amongst those who come in with humility. So you enter into a conflict in any kind of relationship. It doesn't matter if you're married or not. And you say, I know the answer to this conflict from the beginning. You're wrong. You're prideful at that point. Well, let me show you how right I am. Well, then you're wrong. You never. You always. You don't ever listen to me. Well, you're wrong. From the beginning, you're wrong. But if you enter in with this posture, you know, I recognize that I've been doing this, which contributes to the issues we're having. I wonder if we can talk about how we might meet in the middle. Then you have wisdom, which is found in those who seek advice from one another and seek wise counsel from others also. The truth is, most of what drags relationships down are the gray areas of life. It's differences that we have in gender and personality, various preferences and culture and politics and family of origin and style, and all of those are gray, non-black and white issues. And if you come into those kinds of issues in your marriages or other relationships with a definitive statement that I am right, you believe that in your bones, then you will fail with conflict resolution. Indeed, I'll even go so far as to say if you come into black and white moral issues with this posture of, let me show you that I am right, you won't be heard by your partner. So you may have the privilege of being right, but you won't move toward resolution because they won't be able to hear you because of your pride. It requires humility this commitment to meet in the middle, the tonic to intensity in conflict is humility. There are three basic ways that I see people dealing with conflict over and over again. I wanna outline them real briefly. They are sweeping, battling, and bridge building. Sweeping, in essence, you see this in all different kinds of relationships. People see some big elephant in the room, and they say, you see that big elephant in the room? All right, you see that big elephant in the room? Let's get out our brooms and let's see if we can sweep it under this very little itty bitty rug, okay? All right, we didn't have success with that. We see it, it's there still kind of hanging out of the rug, but we're gonna ignore it. We're gonna pretend that it's not there. We're gonna sweep it under the rug and we're just gonna choose not to feel related to this issue. And you choose not to feel and you choose not to feel and you choose not to feel until one day you just don't feel anything anymore. And this happens all the time, sadly, in marriages, such that at some point, husband and wife are living under the same roof, but they're basically an organization operating in parallel with each other, but there's no synergy with each other. Now, the opposite of that, sweeping it underneath the rug because we're uncomfortable or unwilling or we're just lacking 
courage, prayerful courage, to have the difficult conflict that has to be had. The opposite of that is the battle motif that we put on our boxing gloves and we fight it out. And I'm right and you're wrong and I have an opinion and it doesn't matter how small my opinion is, you're gonna hear it, okay? And I'm gonna say my opinion to you and I'm gonna prove to you that I am right and we might yell and scream it out. And this is the hyper-competitive approach to conflict. And the problem with that approach is this, you're going to have a winner and you're gonna have a loser. And I don't know about you, but it just doesn't feel too good to feel like a loser in marriage. Like, it's one thing to feel like a loser in a ball game of some kind, but to feel like a loser in marriage. That he chooses to put on his armor battle, and she chooses to put on her armor battle, and all they're doing is trading blows and getting defensive with each other, and nobody is hearing one another. And the only thing that's exchanged is the emotion. There's no content exchanged at all. And inevitably what happens when a couple does that long enough is they don't live in parallel universes anymore. They separate from each other. Right? We've seen this. And so someone has to have the humble courage to interrupt that. Again, Proverbs is so beautiful on this. Proverbs 17.1 says, Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. I mean, you've been in one of those houses full of feasting, and you might be eating filet mignon, but man, it tastes like mincemeat, doesn't it? Because there's so much strife in the house. And so, in humility, we come to each other and we say, how can I be a bridge builder? The third option is bridge building. One of my favorite activities in premarital counseling is to ask the couple to develop their own rules for conflict. Because it's a given, because it's going to happen, how are you going to have conflict in your home? And I asked them to read a number of Bible verses on how to have conflict because the Bible speaks a whole lot to this. And then they would develop their own rules for conflict management with their kids and with their spouses. I did this recently with a, a family, a blended family, as though they came together and they developed their own rules, which they've, put it on, which they've put on their bathroom mirrors to look at on a regular basis. And they gave me permission to share their rules with you. Here's their top eight Rules for conflict. Number one, we will deal with conflict proactively. Number two, we will own our feelings. That means you're not responsible for how I feel. I'm responsible for how I feel. I'm not going to blame my feelings on you. Number three, choose right timing and right reasons for bringing it up. Are you bringing it up for your pride? Then don't. Number four, disagree, but always respect each other amidst those disagreements. Number five, don't use absolutes. Why don't you use absolutes? Because they're not true. When we say you never and you always, that's not the facts. Number six, zero tolerance for dishonesty. No sneakiness. Number seven, seek wise counsel, not alliances. 
We all can make alliances with certain friends and family. Don't do that. Instead, seek wise counsel who objectively want your marriage to succeed. And number eight, reach resolution for us. Work together to keep resolution as partners and as parents. That's a beautiful list. And you know what that list does? It defines for that couple and for their kids, these are the things that we will have conflict over and these are the things that we will let die. We'll notice that we have these little molehills and we'll allow them just to be molehills as opposed to letting them become mountains. We'll just let them die. It also says this is the way we'll bring it up as we deal with our own selfishness first. And it defines what is the difference between a moral issue like honesty and respect and seeking alliances. Those are moral issues. What's the difference between those and a non-moral issue that perhaps we just kind of ignore and let go? I'd strongly encourage you to develop your own rules for conflict in your home. If you want to do this one assignment, this one application, I cannot tell you how much benefit it would have both for your kids and for your marriage. Up on the screen here, you'll see a whole bunch of verses in which the Bible speaks about how we would have conflict and ways we would work toward resolution. You might take a photograph of that and process through all those passages together as a family and develop your own top five list, rules for conflict, or top ten list, rules for conflict. This, again, engages how you will have conflict, when you will have conflict, and when it's time to just allow that flame turn into little ashes and go away. We build bridges, and we meet in the middle And then finally, number three on your outline, we pursue reconciliation with one another. We pursue peace. We pursue peace in our marriages. We pursue peace in our most important relationships. An older friend of mine who was a mentor of sorts before he died a few years ago was married for 58 years, and they had one of the happiest marriages I've ever seen. And I miss Walt and Dottie a lot. Beautiful, beautiful people. And shortly after I was married 16 years ago, Walt took me aside and he said, Adrian, can I tell you what has been the difference maker in my marriage over the past 50 years? I said, Walt, I'm all ears, brother. Please tell me. And he said, our marriage has been happy across the past 50 years because we have committed ourselves, first and foremost, to two rules. And our two rules, our two rules have been these, Adrian. Number one, we deal with all conflict before we go to bed every night. If we have any conflict, we deal with it every night before bed. And then number two, once we've dealt with it, we commit to each other never to bring it up again. We deal with it, and then we let it go. And because we deal with it quickly, it doesn't get too big. It doesn't become huge because we deal with it quickly. And Walt and Dottie understood That forgiveness is really hard, but unforgiveness is way harder. And so they proactively work to apologize and to forgive each other. They followed the Bible's clear mandate to us. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with it as quickly as you possibly can. And I don't think that command is actually a rule that says you have to deal with it before 6 p.m. tonight when the sun goes down. 
But I do think it's the kind of proverb that you want to live by that says, I'm going to deal with it over the course of the next couple days, lest it begins to fester and create a wedge in our relationship. And we deal with our issues before the sun goes down as quickly as we possibly can because we love each other, because we don't want to allow a wedge. And because we recognize that God has forgiven us far more than we will ever forgive anyone else. Like, do you think about that often? Do you look up at the cross on a regular basis and remember that God has forgiven you of far more than you will ever have to forgive another person? Do you think about that? This is the gospel. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and yet God has freely forgiven us through the blood of Christ And all of our cumulative sins, past, present, and future, everything that we have ever done wrong has been forgiven by the cross of Christ, and he has forgiven far more than we will ever have to forgive another person. To return to that on a regular basis changes the way you see how other people have hurt you and enables you to forgive them in a way that you wouldn't through your own strength. We are given the grace of God, which enables us to forgive other people in a way that we couldn't do so ourselves. Listen, here's our Bible verse for the month of February. If you haven't yet picked up this keychain of Bible verses, I encourage you to do so out of the information table or the journey wall. It says this, um, God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God gave you and me the ministry of peace-building, reconciliation, first with our family, second with our church, then third in all of our relationships, that we would be leaders in building reconciliation with other people that regardless of how they hold on to grudges, we do not. We're unusual in this. Christians are unusual in this. We make peace with other people. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation and how powerful that is to bear out that ministry within our marriages. Like if you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will believe that you will make lots of mistakes. Anyone? Raise your hand. Come on. Two hands for me. All right? We all make lots of mistakes because we're all in process. And so we ask for forgiveness a lot. Expect it. Expect to courageously and humbly apologize frequently. And then expect to courageously and humbly forgive frequently. To keep short accounts with each other. Because God chose to keep a short account with us by giving Jesus Christ for us. You know, the word reconciliation is even better than the word forgiveness. Reconciliation means that God has eliminated all of the hostility between us and God. He's made peace. He's removed the wedge. He's stopped the anger. The wrath of God has been averted. He's taken all of that away. Far beyond mere forgiveness, he has brought love to us that he loves us, that he wants to be in union with us, that he calls us his friends. That's what reconciliation does. It brings about this peacemaking. And so also we would seek peace. We would seek reconciliation with one another 
particularly around the conflicts with our kids, with our parents, with our spouses. What a legacy if we do that. I'll wrap up with this. I've been so deeply troubled over the past several months by the development of cancel culture. You know, this, you may or may not know the phrase, but this idea that if you don't agree with me on something, then our relationship is done. And if you disagree with me on something online, then I, I'm going to unfriend you online. We're done. And if we disagree on something politically, then we can't have a relationship anymore. I, I mean, the development of this culture in our country is preventing the normal Christian language of apology and forgiveness. It's preventing the normal Christian language of we're different and that's okay and we can still learn from each other in spite of our differences. And I'm telling you, as a pastor, I see it on a regular basis, it's fracturing families. Cancel culture is coming into families and it's fracturing families. And it's fracturing churches. Our most important relationships with families and churches are being fractured because we're saying, I can't forgive him of that. Friends, I can think of no greater testimony to our world and perhaps no greater legacy for a family to counteract that with an atmosphere of forgiveness and reconciliation. And to say, we're going to be the kind of people who quickly apologize, who quickly forgive, who work toward reconciliation with each other. I know couples that I've personally worked with that have gone through the horror of infidelity, and even so, they have worked to rebuild trust slowly over time, and now they have a beautiful marriage. I've known other couples in which one person has been an alcoholic, He's been a terrible alcoholic, but he's built trust again with her as he has worked through the recovery process. And as they've slowly rebuilt trust in that area, eventually they've rebuilt trust in their marriage, and now they have a beautiful marriage. They've forgiven each other, and they love each other again. I've known couples who have been like this around money for decades and somehow, over the course of time, they work through it to be able to build a bridge and make peace and come to the middle and love each other and understand each other in the areas of money and how to raise the kids and politics and other things that are big issues like that. And as a result, they have a testimony of reconciliation to their children that we do things differently because we're Christians. We're Christians. And so we pursue the ministry of reconciliation with each other. And I'm telling you, I can think of no greater testimony to our world than couples saying, in spite of the many great differences that we've had and all of the challenges that we've been through and substantial things that we've had to forgive, we've learned to do it. We love each other and we're built stronger through the challenges that we've been through. And kids look at something different that we can provide as followers of Christ who enables us to do what we cannot do on our own. It starts with this, Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, 
compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. As God in Christ has forgiven us so much more. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we so desperately need your forgiveness. As we go into communion right now, we admit that we so desperately need your forgiveness. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is in process. Every single one of us has a long way to go. And every single one of us is in need of your forgiveness today. And so, Father, we ask for your help. We ask, God, that you'd help us as followers of Christ to be different, that we would receive your love on a daily basis, we would meditate on your love, we would meditate on your great forgiveness and reconciliation to us. And as a result of your forgiveness and your reconciliation, we would want to give it to others. God, you've been a generous and kind and loving God to us. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for the cross. Father, I pray for my friends here in this room. We're all struggling probably with some relationship. And so I ask that you lead every person in this room. What is the next step that they must take? Maybe it's with a child. Maybe it's with a sibling. Maybe it's with someone in their life group. Maybe it's their spouse. Father, we look to you and we ask for your strength and your courage and your humility to do what is too difficult for us to do, to seek peace. By the power and the grace of God, we ask for your help. We love you, Lord. We thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.